welcome to Soundtrack Showdown, our monthly podcast where we pick two soundtracks and pit them against each other. Today, as always, is my co-host and co-composer Tristan. Hey. Hey, hey, Ella. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. And yourself? Oh, yeah. All right. The world is, uh, shall we say, not back to normal yet, but it's it's on its way. And I think it is about time we do a couple of films about the world in a very much not normal place again. <laughs> well, before we delve deep into the unknown and talk about today's soundtracks. Just a couple of reminders, such as spoiler alert. Oh, yes. Just so you know, we will be referencing these films, talking about what happens in the story, beginning, middle and end. So if you haven't seen these films, uh, we would highly recommend as these particular ones are exquisite and visual gems and unique in their own right. So we wouldn't want anyone to miss an opportunity to appreciate the filmmaking whilst we talk about the music. Yep. And if you like listening to our episodes and want to keep track with the latest ones, then don't forget to subscribe to our channel, both on iTunes, Spotify, Sketcher and other mediums. Anywhere and you get your podcasts. Exactly. And please feel free to leave us a review because we really want to know if we're doing good, I yeah. guess. And share us with your friends. Let your friends know. Sharing is caring. <laughs> 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 and this month, again, I think this season we're kind of trying to, I wouldn't say spice things up, but just experiment with our rounds and our choices of films and like um, yeah. topics, I guess. So mm -hmm. this month we're, we've got two films directed by the same director, which is Gilmore Del Toro, um, but two different composers. And this is a way to see how they manage and if they manage to fulfill and support his really distinctive and unique, fantastical cinematic vision through their score. Mm. So the two films we're talking about are his breakout film, Pan's Labyrinth from 2006, with a score by Javier Navarrete. And from a, just a couple of years ago, little Oscar Darling, The Shape of Water, 2017, with an Oscar-winning score by Alexander Desplat. What did you think of them, Ella? What's your, what's your history with Guillermo del Toro? When I first saw the film, I found it really dark, hmm. brutal, hmm. and refreshing. Because I think at that time, I felt Tim Burton's films were kind of losing their sort of unique gothic magic and touch because oh. I think at that time in 2005 he had Corpse Bride that was released and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory yep and they just you could kind of see they were just slightly it just wasn't that there was something missing for me he'd lost his edge hadn't he yeah exactly so for me when this came out I was just like wow so uh, it caught me by surprise in a good way and it kind of again tapped into my more macabre 
Side, yeah, I, I, I can see that because they actually are tonally a little bit more like some of your favourite films like um, Edward Scissorhands and stuff like that in that there's a messiness to everything. Exactly. Yeah. And, and they're both very psychological films like with a lot of contradictions. And I, I, I think with, this, with Pan's Labyrinth, I really felt like I went on this deep journey with the characters and just trying to deal with these horrific circumstances mm. um i think the ending also really because it's quite a brutal ending <laughs> yeah spoilers <laughs> i mean and to be yeah. honest i think it was the first time i mean that i can remember that that seeing a child just just get murdered like that in cold blood was just quite shocking yeah you, think. For, you forget how rare it is don't you yeah. like you kind of kid yourself that kids get killed in movies all the time but they don't like it's a real taboo um, exactly because yeah. you're you're kind of conditioned into thinking that children are safe that yeah. they're somehow protected that yeah. just when you think that they might get killed somebody or something is going to swoop in and save the day like harry potter kind of has this vibe like there is no sense of danger as, as such mm-hmm. um so for me this was quite refreshing and very realistic i think and yeah. I think that really, in some ways, not exactly upset me, but it kind of made me feel much more emotionally connected to it. Yep. Um, what did you think? Yeah, I mean, so... I've always really liked Guillermo del Toro films, but I'd never watched these ones for some reason. I'd never watched the like his fantasy films properly. Um, I'd seen things like Pacific Rim, was it? Is Blade Two his? Yeah. Hellboy. So I'd sort of seen his ones that were very much like him operating in other genres, but like these are what I would consider his core films. And I'm actually you quite... should ch- you, you should check out uh, the Devil's Backbone I as well. Know. That, yeah, that's I know. Yeah, it's brilliant. And yes, and that's like the first part of Pan's Labyrinth, essentially. It's part of a trilogy. There's characters that come across, very minor characters. So, yeah, so uh, genuinely, I'm really disappointed with myself for not having embraced Guillermo del Toro properly. I really like him as a director. I really do. Um, I think he's probably, for me at least, I think he's probably the best visual storyteller in the world at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the only person who's even close is probably Inaritu, who's quite good. But Inaritu is good in the sense of he has a very good cinematographer and he creates very beautiful films. Whereas I think Guillermo del Toro is better at telling a story through stuff that happens in the frame if that makes sense yeah i know exactly what you mean because one of his criticisms that i've heard and read is that he is great he's a great storyteller because he does write a lot of his own stories Mm. and you know and he pretty much produces writes and directs everything but sometimes some of his dialogue can be not best i think primarily Mm -hmm. when it's english yeah uh, rather than in his home language in spanish because he tends to like he prefers to kind of tell visually yep. a scene like there's a very famous thing where he he would rather showcase somebody in a couple embrace each other to showcase their love as opposed to have like a, them have a monologue yep. to talk about how much they love each other that sort of thing yeah you know, that's his way of communicating it, yeah is, is that what you meant yeah it is and like that 
for example, has meant that things like Pacific Rim did incredibly well around the world because it translates incredibly well. Because his language is so simple, it's actually quite easy to do localization. And more importantly, the film carries. So the film did very well in Japanese and Korean and things like that because they can appreciate the visual storytelling just as well as we can. In terms of the history of cinema, to me, basically, Giorgio del Toro is the absolute continuation of the work of probably the other film director that I really like, which is Stanley Kubrick, who equally wrote all his own stuff, produced all like very obsessively in control of everything, um, and an incredible visual storyteller, except I think that Guillermo del Toro is probably a much nicer human being than Kubrick was. So I think there's a general, genuine upgrade all around, <laughs> but very similar sorts of ideas as far as I'm concerned. He's, he's amazing, and... Uh, his particular approach to adult fairy tales, which we're going to be talking about a lot today, because both of these are adult fairy tales, is very interesting. And his approach to violence in particular is also very interesting. And I am sure we will get to both of those. So no, I, I enjoy the films. They're great. They're fascinating. And I'm glad to have finally had an excuse to actually embrace this side of Guillermo del Toro uh, that I'm ashamed, as I said, that I hadn't seen before. And oh my God, I wish he'd done the Hobbit movies. But you know, that is beside the point. I particularly respect and appreciate his ability to just beautifully craft a film with so much symbolism and great detail. Mm that gets taken into account. I don't know if you've read much about how he literally, when he makes, when there, when there are certain films that are very personal to him, <laughs> he goes into such great depth in pre-production into writing the like 40 page worth of like biographies that he then can give to the actor to, uh, to look over to see if that will help with their character development. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I actually read the one for Crimson Peak, um, the biographies that he wrote for um, the two female leads and that. Mm -hmm. Like, he had everything down to their star sign, down to their quirks, down to, like, you know, what their background, their childhood memories, like, how they grew up, what kind of person... Do you know what I mean? Like, all Man. those little traits, I think, us just... He goes really in-depth, and I think that's really quite unique and unusual. Yeah. I haven't. Re I don't. I haven't really read or heard any other director that that goes that in depth. No, there certainly are, but it's it's unusual. Yeah. Mm. Shall we talk about the composers? Sure. So I think Pan's Labyrinth. Javier Navarrete. I apologise. I'm not great with Spanish pronunciations, and there'll be another apology for that in a second. I would say that he's not a particularly well-known composer. He was certainly a composer that Giomo used quite a bit early on in his career. He notably also did The Devil's Backbone. This score by him was nominated for both an Oscar and a Grammy, but didn't manage to win. Um, in fact, he lost to a man whose uh, work we looked at a few months ago, and this is the, the second apology. I must apologize. We consistently mispronounce this man's name and I have finally learnt loosely how to pronounce it. So he lost to the composer Gustavo Santaolalla, or if you're more uh, Castilian, Santaolalla, but given that he's Argentinian, Santaolalla, uh, who in this case had written his score for Babel. Um, and I don't know if we mentioned it at the time, but Gustavo actually won two Oscars in a row for Brokeback and then Babel, which is quite impressive. Yeah. I'm not... Mm, yeah, we'll talk... I mean, I have a few notes about that in Legacy that I want Ooh. to address. <laughs> okay. Regarding that. 
Okay. Well, it's not it's not major notes. It's just like I I disagree with it. Yeah. Yeah. Spoiler. Interesting. Uh, but yes, so so he's perhaps not the best known composer. But whereas for our The Shape of Water, we have probably one of the kind of most well recognized kind of newcomer composers of the last 15, 20 years in Alexander Desplat. This film won Desplat his second Oscar in nine nominations. And I I really like Alexander Desplat. The, the, the one thing I would say about him is that I'm very disappointed that for me, what I think is his best score never got any recognition at all. I think it was maybe too early, but I think his Girl with a Pearl Earring score is one of the best scores there is. Um, and we'll definitely have to talk about that another day. Right, so shall we move on to our round? So for round one, we're going to be discussing main theme and main character. Round two will be the supernatural world. Round three, suspense. Round four, death and resurrection. And then finally, round five, legacy. Alrighty. Right, so let's start with round one main theme and main character. So for Pan's Labyrinth we're going to be listening to the first track of the album and it's the first music that is played at the beginning of the film which is a long time ago and here it is. the theme this lullaby because it just exudes this tragic longing childlike essence because obviously it's a lullaby before that but there's a loss of innocence there and that just captures Gilmore's sort of balance of what how he into how he um, blends the reality and fantasy and the serenity and normality with violence etc um but just as the way that the melody develops and expands, you really get enveloped into Ophelia's world. Like there's something quite raw about it. Because mm-hmm. I was thinking when I was listening to it, like could this could this be placed in another film and have the same effect? Like is it generic enough? Mm. And for me, I felt like because the story the, the story that is told at the beginning of the film about the princess running away from her underworld home to experience life on earth as a human and as soon as she as soon as the sun touches her she experiences pain 
cold and she dies it's it really reminis- it reminds me of like brothers grim mm-hmm. and those gothic fairy tales where they merge the hum- human reality with these fantastical elements that is not sanitized whatsoever like it doesn't sh- sugarcoat the pain and the cruelty of human experience and stuff yeah and i feel like the music does that there's a sort of like tragedy and pain to it even though it's done in a sort of like childlike melody and the melody gets inside you i feel like it really lingers there Mm. and when you kind of look and analyze the main character ophelia who obviously she uses fairy tales as a way um as a coping mechanism to deal with her reality Mm-hmm. such as the fact that her father died her mother remarried a fascist general and is impregnate impregnated and you know the mother is visibly not well with the pregnancy and therefore it's implied several times in the film that if and when it comes down to prioritizing her life is secondary and the child is first mm. you know mm-hmm. and i think it's just those elements of those cruelty that just I think you don't normally get in fairy tales. It doesn't get shown visibly. Mm. Um, so it kind of it just captures the sadness and fragility of how reality blends into our fantasy. And no matter how much we want to escape it, parts of it will always ex- influence our experience. As you know, both as we go through the film, you know, both fantasy and reality environments are both hostile in their own way. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so, when so in terms of like how it represents Ophelia, uh, the music reflects a version of reality that she can understand and process that is aligned with her current beliefs and child's perce- perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so situations and people that she meets manifest themselves in different ways or different versions. So. Yeah, for me, I think that kind of the music captures it right at the beginning. Okay. Do you, for you? Yeah, I mean, yeah, look, I, I agree 100% with all that. I guess I just mainly want to unpack some of those ideas. So let's start with the idea of it being a lullaby. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, you said that it has a sort of a, a lullaby form, which I completely agree with. I think melodically, actually, it sounds quite a bit like there's a particular... Um, Elga cello concerto that has a very similar undulating flow um, but this is very much like a, a lullaby form of the same thing and I think what makes it feel like a lullaby is that it has a real breathing motion to it like there's this constant like breathe in breathe out breathe in breathe out rocking kind of emotion to it mm. and I think that's what defines a lullaby is they just have this very very specific calming it's like motion. A soothing. Yeah, soothing. Soothing. And then obviously we also have to talk about the fact that it is um, sort of hummed in a female voice um, quite mm. often, which is obviously also a very core thing. Lullaby is being basically a female, uh, a women's oral history, pretty much, that's passed down through the act of, of soothing children, mm-hmm. which is very crucial also to the story of, Ophelia and her mother and and that relationship so it, it and and for that matter Ophelia and Mercedes who talks about the lullaby 
at one point and about how she doesn't remember the words and that's why it's hum so so that's that's all very powerful and, and interesting as to the darkness yes and that's I would say that that's actually a trait both of lullabies and of fairy tales is that because mm. when you actually think about the lullabies that you might know um most tend to include violence mm. in them. They they involve some sort of like, you know, when the bell breaks, the baby will fall and Dale will come cradle, you know, baby cradle mm-hmm. and all. Like there tends to be um, both falling, which is like a metaphor for falling to sleep, but there tends to be genuine violence and darkness just kind of written into these very like loving, soothing songs. And that's just kind of how they are. And it, it's the same, as you say, with, with fairy tales of like, grim fairy tales and and all of those where they're kind of like little morality tales for children that include the dangers of the world that you should be worried about so i think uh, del toro is very deliberately kind of combining these two ideas because the fairy tale that ophelia has it isn't just some magical wonderful world that allows her to escape the brutality of the fascist reality that she's in Mm. it's uh it's a fairy tale that includes some pretty ghastly stuff and like rules she has to follow and you know penalties for breaking those rules and we'll get to some of those later on like it's 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 pretty rough but it's very much down the down the down the line for traditional fairy tales I, i would say so then moving on to shape of water yep uh the song that we are obviously listening to is called the shape of water I mean, this is so. For for those at home who who maybe don't think about things quite the same way, this is peak Desplat. This is what Desplat sounds like. Um, you know immediately that you're listening to a Desplat score when you get what what I would call these bell-like tones. He loves things like harps, celestes, pianos, percussion. 
with long reverbs. It's just a, a huge core sound of his. He tends not to use so much like kind of uh, kit percussion, as it were. He will tend to use these more tuned melodic type percussion, percussive sounds. He himself is a flautist, so he also uses a hell of a lot of flute. And in this score, 12, to be exact. 12, yes, (laughs) in this score, replacing the entire trumpet section, I think. And it's perfect for this, I think, Um, because obviously those two qualities, the long reverbs, the woodwinds, it kind of gives everything a lovely underwater kind of a sound. Uh, And I know that in this film in particular, he was trying to sort of go for, well, what does water feel like so he's gone with a lot of flow and wave like motion and stuff which i I think is is very very cool probably the only thing oh and the the other instrumentation thing i'll note is that uh, you hear quite a bit of whistling through the soundtrack including in this track the whistling represents elise or Mm -hmm. eliza um but is actually displar himself actively whistling so that's kind of fun you can hear his literal voice in the soundtrack um, probably the only thing I don't like about this is that Desplat, his style is very, very French, uh, mm-hmm. I think. Like, you can, you can hear quite a lot of Saint-Saëns and Satie and Debussy in in Desplat. And for anyone out there who, you know, maybe that, that was just words, I would advise go out and have a listen to all three of those composers because they are lovely to listen to. Um, in their own way, and you can definitely hear how Desplat is very much in this sort of very French tradition, uh, to the point that this soundtrack, it kind of sounds a lot like Saint-Saëns' Aquarium from Carnival of the Animals, it's very, like, um, diminished sevenths and stuff to create that sense of aquatic tension, as it were. The one problem with that is that, to me, it sounds very, very French. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that actually... Uh, because he said it in an interview, uh, Giomo told him to write a very European score. But honestly, and like until she actually went downstairs and she sits on like a bus b- uh, bench that says Baltimore, I honestly thought this must be set in Paris. I, I was mm. getting like old, like older lady Amelie vibes from the start of this film. I felt like from her apartment, her little sparse apartment, and everything. Oh, this is clearly set in France, and I was completely then surprised to discover that it was like an American Cold War drama. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, mm-hmm. it, it kind of put me into the wrong place. Uh, but yes, yeah, so that's pretty much what I have to say. Interesting. I agree with a lot of what you said as well. Good, because I'm um, right. <laughs> <laughs> to an extent. Um, I So for me, yeah, you definitely get immersed straight away as the music Good choice starts. of words. And well, yeah, because like <laughs> literally, how could you? It's like you are literally in it mm-hmm. underwater because um, it's gentle hmm. to begin with. As you, I felt you were being moved and you're kind of swimming along across the scenes, you know, as you kind of zoom in into the apartments and going through the corridors and everything. Mm-hmm. You, you do get the sort of otherworldly vibe to it hmm. alongside this European sound as well. Because as you said, you know, it uses accordion. It also uses mm. a band, bandoneon. I think it's, meant- I don't think he actually uses a bandoneon, but he uses an accordion played in a way that sounds like a bandoneon, which is basically, it's a very particular Argentinian yeah. accordion-like instrument, or concertina technically, which is basically an accordion that they use for tango, which is yeah. meant to 
represent to, the creature. Yeah, so it's yeah. meant to represent the creature's origin uh, in being in South America because, yeah. and it's what it's funny the fact that you felt it that it was very French, mm. which then makes it me makes me kind of think that it didn't work. It didn't work because if you're trying to showcase the origins of this creature or hint the origins of this creature that it's in South America and mm -hmm. it's more an Argentine tango, then surely it needs to kind of have more uh, significant melodies or rhythm to mm -hmm. it that is different from French. So maybe he just, that's where he kind of got it wrong because I felt the same way. It, it felt very European and felt in the sense that it felt very French. Mm. And it, um, it kind of has this sort of, you kind of you associate this sort of romance with this sound as well. Mm. So I did know that we were going to be going into a romantic type film, mm -hmm. and it has the sort of these like nostalgic triggers as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, I th if to be true, I th it's pretty. Mm. You know, it's a, it's a it is the nice piece of music. Um, and it goes very well with the visuals and the narration. Hmm. So for me though, as I, so as I say that both have narrations, both have a reference of a princess archetype because both of them mm -hmm. mention the princess. Mm -hmm. So you as an audience are kind of triggered to associate that what you're seeing is a potential fairy tale or yep. has elements of a fairy tale. Mm -hmm. However, I felt much more emotionally connected to the Pan's Labyrinth theme mm. because it delved more into my subconscious, sort of childhood subconscious. And I, fe I felt more for the princess that we were seeing and her storyline and kind of leading up to Ophelia's introduction and her story and her tragedy. Mm -hmm. Whereas with Shape of Water, I feel more as an observer and I feel I felt immersed into the world and perspective of the character and the setting of this film but I wasn't emotionally connected to the character yet mm -hmm. that's how I felt so if we had to go into choosing a winner yep. for me it would be Pan's Labyrinth yeah fair enough I, I look I'm inclined to agree um, for exactly that reason and the and one other reason that I'll add which is that in both these cases, they're introducing a theme that is actually used all the way through each film, respectively. But in the case of um, Pan's Labyrinth, this lullaby theme, you really feel every time it comes back. Whereas even though The Shape of Water has only really a couple of themes and it uses them a lot, I, I don't know. To me, it doesn't feel like it's a very theme-dominated, like musical theme-dominated film. Would you agree? Do you feel it got lost in the water? <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, so yes, for, for that reason, um, and also very, very much the fact that yeah, it, it sounds French. He's trying to nod to South America, but it doesn't work. I think, I think, perhaps Alexandre, being obviously very French himself, doesn't appreciate just how much the rest of the world associates the accordion with France. I think he just he thinks of it as being just another instrument and that perhaps if he grew up anywhere else, he would realise, oh, no, you've got to be very careful with an accordion. <laughs> and well, it just yeah, sounds too Yeah, you have French. to be very specific into... Style, yeah. Yeah, the style that you're going to be performing and using it for. So, yeah. Yeah, um, I think without using it, like actually composing a tango, which he hasn't, this is a waltz. 
um, a mm. waltz on an accordion. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, Pan's Labyrinth for me as well. So that is two votes for Pan's Labyrinth. Moving on to round two, the supernatural world. Yeah, I mean, this round is purely just to kind of see how well have the composers created and adapted, I guess, Gilmore's film and the world, you mm. know, whether they highlighted it well, whether they did it justice or not. So for Pan's Labyrinth, the track that we are focusing on is called Fairy and the Labyrinth. <laughs> obviously the scene where Ophelia follows the th- the fairy through the maze down mm. to the, st- the stairs before she meets the fawn and then gets told of her who she really is her real yes. identity and how she needs what the thing what she needs to do in order to reclaim her mm. princess status yep and yeah I mean for me I it definitely exudes a lot of danger and wonder Mm. and it has a sort of a folklore feel to it and the use of some of the instrumentation like the the pan flute and the pizzicato strings um really reminds me of the as the reminds me of mythical beings dancing in the forest in front of a bonfire and obviously how the main theme is also intertwined by the choir for me it really kind of there's a sense of danger and curiosity all merged and i like how the music is not overly whimsical or cute no there's a real hint of horror and anxiety in there with i there's this sort of murmuring uh quality um effects that 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 comes in and there's also Mm -hmm. certain parts where it gets a little bit quite tense Mm-hmm. which makes you as a listener be on your guard to not fully immerse yourself into the spell and be wary of the territory that you're entering. So I do... So in terms of capturing the supernatural, I think it does its justice pretty well. 
mm-hmm. in this sort of that it's otherworldly but not to be trusted yeah you know you know in, it's it be in awe but be wary you know i think that's it it's it's using awe rather than like uh, magical uh, uh, the, the magical template the magical mm. fantasy template basically it's mm. more in the awe bordering on horror end of it which is more kind of traditional fairy tale than it is as we say the more disney end of the spectrum i think i think that's exactly on it for me this track it alternates between at least early on it alternates between um tension like genuine suspensey tension of what is this what's going to happen um sort of is she safe is she safe and temptation um, mm. it's it's skirting on that line which is something we spoke about with legend back when we did that as well of the of that same like that same thing of the of the, of the of the other being both a little bit concerning but also exciting and yeah. wanting to, and wanting to draw you in there's quite a lot of that particularly with the fairy um, but then when she gets to the labyrinth itself when you get the the women's choir in and the swirling strings and stuff, then it goes a bit more into wonderment. I think mm. um, it starts mm-hmm. to get a little bit more Stravinsky-like. It's I, I don't felt I didn't really feel any danger when she's in the labyrinth. It felt more magical at this point, which is kind of the point because she's following the fairy clearly somewhere useful, uh, and that kind of guides her in. And then it ends with that statement of the lullaby to all tighten everything together. And I, I like this track. Or the way it both flows with the scene and then introduces the lullaby back in as the central motif, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Shall we move on to the shape of water? Yes. And the and the track that we're <laughs> and, and, the, and the track that we're listening to is called Egg. You know, it has a sort of espionage, spy type quality to it mm. musically, and it's quite cold and mm. mysterious. Very I guess, cold, yeah. 
Yeah, and you're because you're meant to be kind of your. It's meant to kind of ground you into this serious world at first, but then a new world forms when you hear Elsa's theme come through. So you kind of have this juxtaposition of of romance forming with a creature in the high facility lab, you know, and when mm. she starts interacting with the creature, when the music layers this interaction, the music really kind of highlights the qualities of her personality whereby mm. she's very affectionate and she's quite gentle yet emotive. So I also feel that the transition of the world's changing in this <laughs> music. You know, when the piano comes in, it kind of feels like this veil or the sheet rolls over and the colors change and you are now in her world of wanting a connection and seeing or, and trying to connect with a kindred spirit in mm, this creature. That's an interesting way of putting it, yeah. I think this music's tone does highlight the supernatural, but as a non-threatening. Yeah. I think that's very key. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's not your typical monster threat. And like the whole point of this creature is he's not meant to be like your typical universal Frankenstein Dracula type thing. It's um it's meant to be represented more as it as a being slash animal that can be understood. Yeah, well reasoned. the words you just used there I think are are it. It's not a monster, it's a creature. And I think yeah. that's the distinction that it's making. And it's I mean, visually he references the creature from the Black Lagoon in terms yeah. of old movies as well. Um Sorry, go on. But I just want to point out that, yeah, that those words, exactly. Completely agree. And because it really makes a difference to your association when you mm. hear those between a difference between a monster and a creature. Yeah, because we need I mean? to sympathize with him because this, yeah. this creature is never going to do anything particularly horrible. No. Um, it's not something that she is ever scared of. At exactly. no point is she scared. And because we're fundamentally from her perspective... It's important that it never even allow us to consider the idea that he's hostile or nasty or dangerous. Well, there is a there is a short moment of him being portrayed musically quite menacing when he kind of rises up, but it's meant to be depicted more as a defense mechanism. Mm -hmm. So the action of him kind of rising up to, it's meant to not harm her, but just to kind of, you know almost to be like can you be trusted this youth hmm. woman you know yeah and i'd say that that is it's tension rather than it like it yeah so it does allow for some tension actually it's quite interesting and it's quite similar to the fairy and labyrinth and the way that it moves between curiosity tension and wonder it bounces between those emotions it does allow it live that bit of tension through the the idea of is it is it dangerous but it makes it it never makes it seem like the creature, which who never gets a name, do they? It never makes it seem like the creature is unstable in any way. And I think that's key. Mm. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, I pretty much said it all there. Um, because neither of these characters talk ever, um, this is a very interesting scene. It's It's almost like a silent movie, but it's actually probably more like back in the day of... Um, movie musicals in particular they, a lot of musicals have what they call a, like a ballet like not mm. literally ballet but like it's a, a, a sequence that where they tell a story through interpretive dance um, and this and a few other scenes have that quality to them not necessarily in how they're shot but in terms of how Displa scores it because he's not having to worry about dialogue and so he he kind of almost Mickey Mouse's a little bit the the to and fro of their their interactions, and that's that's really cool. 
and I, I like the contrasts he has. You mentioned the the piano, how it feels like a veil when it comes down. I, I like that as a statement. But the, the way that it it really pops out because it's come after the sort of really exotic sounding low woodwinds and fluttery strings and the sort of low harp arpeggio stuff. Like it's in a completely different register to them. So it just it really stands out in the score mm. when it happens. Um, that's just very, very good orchestration, basically, of he's using um, extreme contrast to, to bring attention to, to moments in this scene. A scene which otherwise, like, this is one where, with the wrong music, this could have really dragged this film and this scene in particular. Like, there's some long kind of weird longing scenes between these two characters who never talk. It, poorly handled, either visually or orally, this this could have been a terrible film, and so I, I give Displayer a lot of credit for its success. Um, which one would you vote for, Ella? Pan's Labyrinth. I think this might be a theme for you. <laughs> uh, no, no, I'm not that predictable. <laughs> um, I am actually, I am going to go with The Shape of Water for this one. Um, okay. I, I think it, it is a much as I love the fair in the labyrinth, it's it's a bit more traditional. I think mm-hmm. in this case, the sh- um, egg. <laughs> egg. I think it, it has the benefit of not having to go over much dialogue. Not that there's a whole lot of dialogue in fair in the labyrinth, to be honest. So he's definitely he's being given a moment to work with, and he loved that as a composer, where you get just all of that space. You don't have to worry about sound effects. You don't have to worry about dialogue. You can just just be you. It's yeah. almost more like animation. Um, mm. But I think he's also being asked to do a lot, and I think he achieves it. So I'm going to go with Alexandre Desplat for this one. Interesting. Shall we move on to round three? Suspense. Suspense. So for Pan's Labyrinth, we're going to be listening to Not Human. So this is the moment where Ophelia goes on one of her quests her second mm. quest to retrieve a key um, whilst she is going to be in the presence of a horrific creature with yes. saggy skin uh, look like once was a fat man that got starved to death and then obviously all things start to go wrong when temptation kicks in Her. yes don't eat the feast and what does she do she eats a couple of grapes um, <laughs> so, uh, so here it is.
teaches you that, you know, if you're going to go on a quest of some sort, take eat something before you go. <laughs> bring a snack. Yeah, bring a snack. <laughs> bring like a protein bar or something. Just, you never know what. Because it's, when you're, it's like they say, don't go shopping with an empty stomach. Hungry, because you'll yeah. end up buying everything and not thinking straight. So, uh... <laughs> So this look, this is a this is an interesting scene and an interesting an interesting track. So, just f- for the art history people out there, or the, maybe for the non art history people out there, one of the interesting features of this film is that a lot of the fantasy world is based on paintings by um, Francisco Goya, a Spanish artist. Uh, this particular being, he doesn't look exactly like, but he definitely has a strong resemblance to um, Saturn eating his child, I think it's called in English. Um, and the fawn is also a, a, like a key sort of figure in what they call Goya's black period. So that's a, like an interesting kind of like aside, but it, it definitely makes for a pretty horrific um, image. One for nightmares, basically. One that's yes, going to stay ni- with you. Nightmare fuel, for sure. I, I kind of love this because... So one thing about um, Giomo is he loves to use references. So the Goya reference is very deliberate. Goya very much writing, um, sort of painting an earlier period of sort of Spanish, essentially fascism, which Giomo is talking about again here with um, Franco's Spain in in the war. Uh, So he tends to use a lot of art history stuff. He also likes to use a lot of film history in, in bits and pieces. And I personally believe that this track it has a lot of very traditional um like hollywood monster music about it like there's there's mm. with the the like the particularly the woodwind trills and and stuff it sounds like um like the franz waxman score for bride of frankenstein like it's it goes right all the way back there but then when it gets uh, more kind of horrific at the end after she eats the grape and the monster awakes as it were it, it goes into um, stuff, I'd say, a bit more like Howard Shaw, um, like some of like his writing for The, the Fly and even some of his um, Lord of the Rings writing. So he's kind of using, I feel, two different eras of, of Hollywood uh, monster music against each other, which I, I, think is, I think is very, very cool. Mm. Um, and just, there's just lots of tropes in here. The, at the end, the big, powerful percussion, you've got the... Jagged piano, which we've, we've actually talked about quite a lot lately. The jaggedy piano in Die Hard and um, Logan, in particular, as but he has that on top of arpeggiating piano to create this real like crazy panic moment. I I like it. It's it's very it's very tricksy. It's very tropey. It's not very original, but much like in Logan, which also is doing a lot of like referencing various eras of film score. Uh, I think it's it's very very cool. So it's just like classic monster movie horror track, which it has to be for this brief monster movie moment in the middle of a film, which is not a monster movie. Mm. For me, there's parts of the track that reminds me of Quest music. Quest music. In the sense that, like, it's quite because when she's running away from the monster, for instance, there's a tempo that changes. That it's not as horrific as. 
when he's after her i mean and when oh, okay. she's when, and when she's trying to when she's just balancing on the chair it's this just like it's kind of like race against time sort of quality to it that's what i mean when okay. it says like quest music um yeah. almost like in not not, not indiana jones because no, that's too uplifting but it's a bit 80s though i get you it's like it, it it's actually even though it's not electronic it it did remind me almost of stranger things at times mm. which also was sort of like tapping into that 80s um action quest sequence i get you i hear and so like obviously when the music first starts you get the door opening and the music plays those chords as the camera zooms out to showcase the corridor and it's a sort of otherworldly environment and it makes you feel danger and it kind of makes you feel it reminds me of like when aladdin goes into the tomb to retrieve the lamp you know Mm. going to unknown to and yeah there's definitely when you mention about horror music there's definitely moments of this ascending and descending murmur that i found very unsettling just creepy basically yeah. and then obviously then the awakening of as you know when she eats the grape and then the monster starts to wake up just those little percussion hits even though some people might be like oh it's really kind of mickey mousing it but it's really effective because you kind of just the, the hits of those percussive like, the Bartok pitzes, yeah, yeah, which is where you um you grab the string and you pull it away from the fingerboard and then you like you let it slap back yeah. onto the instrument and it just goes crunk. And yeah. you, you just feel you get a sense of like the skeleton, like bones are waking up or and cracking. Yep. You know, it's just this is coming alive. It's alive. You, classic <laughs> monster horror movie. Yeah. I also like, and I don't think many people may have noticed. But this particular part happens right at the end of the track when she finally managed to escape and, she, you know, the ceiling or, like, the floor goes mm. down and, like, it seals up and you have this bass that lingers with this repetitive sort of rhythmic thumping. Oh, as though the I piece, didn't notice that. But that's the thing. Not many people do. You don't... Re- you know, It's very faint. But if you watch it with the film... And then if you listen to it at the end, I just this this it has this sort of lingering suspense for me where it's like it, it signifies the beast is still trying to get through through the floor. Okay. Well, here it this is what I mean. This okay. here it is. It's quite profound because you have this no certainty of safety yet. Yep. You know, because you never know. He might be able to get through. It might be yeah. able to get through. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of like that ending to it. Shall we move on to the shape of water? Escape, and here it is.
espionage. It, isn't it, it? It's very espionage. It's also it's very displar. You, um, this is a this is a well he goes to quite often. Um, this is how mm. he does tension. There's definitely some examples of it in Benjamin Button, and I think. Uh, most of his scores, any of his scores that have an element like this uh, tend to go into this sound. Basically, he's doing the same thing as the uh, sort of the traditional Bernard Herrmann style um, tension. But rather than using the strings, which Bernard Herrmann made famous, he uses his woodwinds and his bell-like percussion. And that just, it really changes the mood um, of everything. It, just, it softens all of the edges and it gives everything this sort of it's 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 literally it's not as raw you don't get that raw string sound you just get this kind of like smoother calmer but kind of still very sinister sound and it it really sets him apart from all of the american and for that matter now all of the icelandic composers and it for me, it makes everything that bit more fantastical, which is why it works in things like Benjamin Button, which is kind of also meant to be real world, but has this fantasy, like, impossible element to it. But apart from that, it's pretty standard. You've got the sort of nervous, octatonic melody type stuff. You've got some extended um, playing techniques, your Herman dominant sevenths, all of that stuff. It's all It's all pretty standard stuff, but he has he's just got this very personal like sound fingerprint that he uses but uh, to me it like listening to it outside of film in the film it just felt perfectly normal outside of the film it it is a little bit over the top and it feels almost like it belongs in like a, an animated movie like despicable me or something where they're doing like the big escape like it it's quite silly I am so glad that you said oh, that good. because <laughs> in my notes I have makes me think of the incredible okay for yeah some reason. There, yeah there we go yeah this sort of um so, and but the, and the last thing I mentioned is that towards the end you get the real like the, the timpanies and the brass there and that to me makes it really I think this is kind of what you're saying that real cold war spy movie feel mm. but but again which is genre appropriate but again it's at the kind of overblown silly end of the spectrum but good fun your thoughts both tracks have different energies to mm. them and but they're both working against the clock yeah um in terms of like where i i i wasn't gripping my seat as much okay with this okay so you're going to vote for pan's labyrinth the reason why I would go for Pan's Labyrinth is because as much there was there was tension, but there was also frustration in the actions of the character, whereby I felt like, God, if you didn't pick up that goddamn yep. great, yep. you would have saved those fairies. Yeah. You know? I, and I agree. I feel like that is more of a dis- difference in the scene than it is a difference in the music. I think mm. as a scene that that not human scene with that monster in particular is quite terrifying and something you will remember for many years whereas the True. escape from the escape of from the shape of water it's not as significant a moment it, absolutely it just it, but, it it could, but it should have been I okay. feel like it they should it should have in some ways highlighted that you know they could like what you would, I think in some ways you would, should be able to fear and feel what might happen if they 
don't if, if they don't escape oh, I see. Like, what is going to happen see i disagree like, it, i disagree and the reason why i disagree is because i think this is meant to play out like a fun almost childlike caper because the mm. the setup later on is this idea of um strickland and his offside or whatever his name is like they think that this has been done by like a, a, a team of 10 yeah. russian secret agents who have infiltrated the facility and taken it out but it turns out it was done by you know this bumbling mute cleaner and her friends um who had no idea what they were doing um i hear that but i still wanted just a little bit of tension in that is there to be more of a challenge you know, it just felt a little bit too smooth. Yeah, I think the point. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, no, I agree. But I think the point is their naivety that they don't even appreciate how dangerous it is. Like Giles mm. is there, and he like he kind of doesn't expect that having a gun pulled on him is a possibility. And actually, that dissonance <laughs> is, I I think actually the point of they're they're so naive and stupid to the actual danger of what they're involved in. I I I think that's part of the fun, and for that kind of for that reason i am actually going to go with the shape of water because i think it is actually being a little bit more nuanced than we give it credit for shall we move on to round four death and resurrection so for the for pan's labyrinth we're going to be listening to philia and so this is obviously the tragic moment where she is murdered by Vidal. Yep. cold-bloodedly unapologetically mm-hmm. bang yep and here it is. the death takes you by surprise doesn't it it does and and the music kind of goes full-on opera and pretty intense for me yes i mean at the beginning you have you as an audience you're in shock and the music where it pauses just briefly is executed perfectly because you have this moment to kind of think maybe this isn't real maybe something magical might happen yeah he does and that it- a couple of times actually because um, it's the same with the doctor's death as well. It also has like a delayed reaction. And that's yeah. I think that that's sort of part of uh, a sort of GDT's thing. Like mm. he likes his he, his point with violence is very much he wants you to feel the pain of it. Like he wants it to be very very impactful, but not yeah. gory. And I think he does these. It's like I'll describe them almost like little sucker punch type moments of like. Because he makes it's because it's kind of realistic of like because the, there is a moment of shock of did that really just happen, and then yeah, a, exactly. a second or two later the realization of what's happened and it happens with the doctor when he stumbles and CF so with her the thing the point that you're about to make which I'm totally ro- ro- robbing from you is she lifts up her hand and you see the blood and that's when the music goes off. Yeah, Go. and it's unapologetic. It's and it unapologetically states that it's real. Yeah. You've been murdered. Mm-hmm. You dead girl. Yeah. <laughs> And the music is all drama, like pure drama. And like you do 
feel this betrayal yeah. aspect. And the music is very unforgiving. A little bit over the top, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, and then it kind of winds down slightly for, obviously, when Videl, during, then when Videl is murdered, rightfully. Yep. Um, Which is the same thing, actually. He also, There's a bit of a delayed reaction in that one as well. You get sort of shot yeah. in the face, you see the wound, and then he reacts to it a few seconds later. As an audience and as a listener, I think it's um, it's very impactful. Mm. I think that's all I can have to say. Really, I mean, it's yeah. I mean, I, I felt bad. I felt I felt really sad. You know, the fact that oh, this is this is where it kind of really grounds you in reality, and it kind of makes you because all this time you just kind of you're kind of in this weird sort of backwards and forwards of like, are you in fantasy mode? Are you in reality? And are they blending together? Is it real? Is it not? And you're constantly questioning yourself, like what is actually really happening. And as much as you kind of then realize that as much as she wanted it to live in her own world or be able to control her own world, you know, cause there's a moment just before she gets shot where she kind of manages to go through the maze. Mm. Um, cause the magically the walls P- kind of separate, through, yeah. Uh, yeah, to allow her to go through. And then they move back and then Bedell is kind of like, where where she go sort of thing. And as much as, you know, you kind of have this realization that she does not have enough power, the power that she thinks she has in order to save herself, you know? Mm. And it was just, it's quite, it, that moment is quite tragic. You know, it's a sad reality that it, it brings you back ground. It brings you back to reality and makes you realize just how sad life and cruel life can be, and that nobody is safe. Yeah. What did you think? Um, I. So for me, the fairy tale in this film is real. I never really saw them as two separate worlds per se, because the the two interact so much. Um, I very much see this as one of those films where she really is going off and doing these things. She really is in danger. This stuff really does happen. And things like the the Mandrake route, it genuinely does seem to work. And it's more the fact that the people in the quote-unquote real world, or really the adults, uh, they're so caught up and obsessed with death. They're so caught up and obsessed with the violence of the world that they're in that they have forgotten and refused to see the the magic that is around them. So I don't see it as separation. It's it's more that... So there's that shot right at the end when Vidal comes in where we see from his perspective, we see Ophelia, she's there, she's holding her brother, brother and obviously you don't see the fawn, even though Ophelia is talking to the fawn. Um, but I see that less as, like, this is reality, but more as he just can't see it because he's so caught up in his own world that he's the one in the delusion. She's, in fact, experiencing reality in the context of the film. Mm. Um, It's funny, this is what I love about this film, the fact that it opens up these debates like mm. this, because some other people might say, that no, she's the delusional one because she's a child. Like, how can a child really see the reality? Yeah. You know? Um, but your interpretation is valid just as well. And it's in some ways rings true. Like I can 
see where you're coming from and in some ways agree to with it. Yeah. yeah. Music wise, I mean the only thing you didn't mention is that this is obviously the which is so obviously you didn't have to, but this is this the big dramatic moment is the lullaby in its full symphonic yeah. romantic presentation. Um and it and it is quite beautiful and and the other thing I'll point out this is kind of like pedal note, like the long, constant, deep notes underneath that melody in the brass of the strings, which I think it's just a very nice musical representation of death, basically, of it's it's stuck. So we're kind of getting the the separation of her soul, essentially, of like the real world, as it were, Ophelia is is dying, but her spirit is 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 moving on. And so Shape of Water. Yes, and the track is called Rainy Day. Builds up a lot of um, anticipation towards the rainy day, uh, and I think I think this is a, a really cool track. It does give us the sort of big magical romantic conclusion that it, it kind of demands. It, it starts off sounding really, I'd say Stravinsky-like. It's got a lot of that, oh, just a, like murmury, fluttery, not particularly tonal, just all over the place. It's just this real kind of like masterclass in traditional orchestral texture. Which I mean, you know me, I love that stuff. Um, lots of rolling, fluttering sounds. It's but it's all the sounds that um, Desplat kind of likes, but he just sort of like throws them all on the canvas and just sort of lets them all have the moment. But then, as the track kind of builds in, it goes into your sort of awe and wonder template with the big rising brass and strings and everything. Which is, I mean, on one hand, it's kind of cliche, but again, as I've said, this is sort of the point with Del Toro of he he doesn't want to stress you too hard with having to deal with complicated things he he wants to give you nice clear signs of what's going on so this is very much movie soundtrack um and i think that's point, and it, and it works but it has this very exotic sound in fact this is probably um there's some very low flute towards the end here which i think is probably when the soundtrack sounds most south american it sounds very even though it's not genuinely south american the deep breathy flute gives that, that kind of pan flute quality to it and it sounds very exotic and other um and to me that was probably the first time it really bound it to where 
the the monster's meant to be or sorry creature is is meant to be from so I, look i i love it actually i think it's great okay interesting i agree with some of the points you made whereby you said it's very awe-inspiring and it's also there's very majestic mm. you know when the creature kind of rise resurrects himself and you have this sense of relief and you want to applaud when the creature gets his revenge and cuts mm. Strickland's throat, you know, silencing him forever. So you kind of, you have this sort of nice development and elevation of going on this ride. Yep. But I think the moment where you, where Elsa gets shot, it kind of went over my head a little bit. Okay in comparison to the shock of the death of Ophelia in comparison Um, justifiably because obviously that isn't meant to be the main focus because they are are going to get their happy happy ending Um, and we kind of know it's going to happen too like did you ever really think that Elise would die no because we know that the creature can resurrect, essentially. I don't know. It's weird. I mean, and this is how I my feelings towards the film in general. Like, I, I love the aesthetic, the symbolism, the way it was shot, everything, all the details and the characters, the acting. But there was just something like... It was just a little bit hollow for me. Yeah. I think... Yeah, I can see that. I, I agree with it, to be honest. You know, like... And this is where musically, like, as I said, like, I didn't feel emotionally connected to the scene as much as I w- felt I should have. Yeah. Like, I wanted, again, to feel the shock. I wanted to feel this moment of despair. That, like, maybe he won't be able to resurrect her. Yeah. I think I, again, <laughs> I feel like I wanted more of a dramatic journey, emotive journey. Yeah. That I didn't feel I got. Purely because, as you mentioned many, many times, that this blood, that's his way. He has, he's, it's a very sort of French way of kind of like subtly hinting things. Mm. Not to be so over the top and melodramatic with everything. So, so that, I I would just say it's just purely down to taste, you know? Yeah. And so, (laughs) for me, again where I felt more emotion through the music and that made me feel for the character. Yeah. It was Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah. We all saw that coming. Uh... <laughs> Shush. Quiet, you. <laughs> uh, look, in, in this case, I'm, in, I'm inclined to agree. I mean, it, it is such a powerful scene by comparison um, and I know last time I, I didn't want to let the scene control it too much, but this time it's kind of hard to hard to ignore. Um, it's again, it comes down to the lullaby, the strength to which the lullaby is established as a theme in this film, and its presence here. It, you, you feel it; it's very dramatic. It's basically impossible to ignore. And let's move on to round five: legacy. Where do you stand on the the legacy of of this film and the soundtrack in particular? I kind of alluded at the beginning whereby, so he was nominated for an Oscar, but Gustavo yes. won for Babel. 
even though he won previous year for Brokeback Mountain. And I think Javier was robbed. Ah. I really do, because I listened to Babel's soundtrack. And, okay, it's nice. It's atmospheric. It's basically just atmospheric music across different ethnic locations. And that's all. Yeah, because Babel's set all over the place, isn't it? Yes, but that's all. There's no memorable theme. It's very similar to Brokeback Mountain in that it's this very spatial sort of mm-hmm. vibe, you know. That's Santa Alaya's sound. Yeah. He, very, that very thing. He's um. It's his style. It's his signature yeah. style. Fair enough. But, and therefore, I don't agree that he should have won an Oscar for that music. I think... Yep. I, I felt I felt like it's almost like because the film was getting all it was getting all these other awards for film um, I don't know maybe screenwriting it won as well and for other stuff and therefore they felt like oh we might as well just add the composing the, the score on top mm. and I just felt like no I really felt that in because in comparison to all the other nominations I really do feel that Javier's should have actually been recognized more for this yeah, I agree. The lullaby in particular yeah. carries this film in a very special way that not there's not that many films that have tracks that stick out yeah. and carry a film as much as this. So I am inclined to agree that it should be reflect, respected when it does. Absolutely, yeah. and for a foreign film as well, a non-Hollywood, non-American, non-English-speaking foreign film, I think it should have yeah. really been recognised. Because... And this is where you may disagree, but my feeling towards it is that it made such a huge impact to Del Toro's career. Yeah. Bringing him to the spotlight, to the mainstream. That I don't know why you thought I'd disagree with oh, <laughs> No, but I just... <laughs> I think that if it wasn't for Pan's Labyrinth, we would... <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let me finish. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Sorry, go on. <laughs> I think that I think that if it wasn't for Pan's Labyrinth, we would have not got Shape of Water. Mm. Basically. Yep. I agree. And without this score, Pan's Labyrinth wouldn't be anything like the film it is. So I hundred percent agree. Oh, okay, great. I'm gl- I'm glad then. <laughs> <laughs> um, in contrast, I mean, do you have anything to say on top? Yeah, yes, I do. I do. The um. In addition to that, because I agree with all of that, I, I, I think it is interesting just sort of thinking about the soundtrack in general. I think it's very interesting that despite the fact that both this and Devil's Backbone, they are such Spanish stories, right? Mm. Like they're very explicitly about Spanish Civil War. Yeah. Um, very, very Spanish. I find it interesting. And the composer, Javier Navarrete, is also Spanish. I find it interesting that they have not gone for a, a particularly Spanish-sounding score. Mm. There's no guitar. There's no flamenco. There's no. There's no like obvious Spanish touches to be like, you know, this. This is Spain. There's no scene setting from the instrumentation or the musical style. I mean, I've I've read some things that maybe the lullaby is in a Galician style, but it, it like it doesn't feel Spanish, if you know what I mean. Mm. And obviously. Del Toro and Navarrete would be perfectly capable of doing it more Spanish if they wanted to. They So I, I'm going to read that they have clearly chosen not to. And 
I, I just I just find that fascinating. And then the same film where you use like Goya and stuff like that as your references, you you don't you don't go there. You don't use some Joaquin de Rodriguez or, or any of those things. And it's particularly funny given that um, they went with such a Hollywood sound here. As I said, it's sort of like um, quoted universal monster music and stuff like that. Whilst in The Shape of Water, which is set in Cold War America, like very America, America, he's then asked, specifically asked Despire to go for a European sound. I, I just, I find that, I don't know what to make of that. I'm not judging anything on it. I just find that fascinating. That he's decided I to go think... American for his Spanish film yeah. and European for his American film. I think it's purely done to the romance. Sort you think of, that? Yeah. yeah. I think okay. it's purely because like when you think of romance films, you think of French films. Okay. You know. I get you. And if you listen to it, it does kind of, it, it, as I said, it triggers these sort of nostalgic sort of yesteryear memories of, you know, two lovers falling in love and being swayed mm. around together and, you know, the sort of Beauty and the Beast quality. And obviously Beauty and the Beast mm-hmm. in its origin is a French fairy tale. Is it? Yeah. Ah, okay. So whether that's had any influence on the sound in itself, I don't know. Um, I suspect it would have been mentioned. Mm. <laughs> Del Toro tends not to uh, miss things like that. Yeah. So that's, that's actually a very good point. So I'm quite surprised that it won an Oscar. I think yeah. I think when I heard that it won an Oscar, I because it was a, a Del Toro film, I initially felt like, great director who's very unique in his storytelling and his sort of visual cinematic style gets recognized Mm -hmm. by the mainstream you know yeah and the weird because i always class like del Toro. he's he still is able to kind of keep his weird weirdness in the same way that tim Mm -hmm. burton was able to Um, not so much now but in previous years and so i didn't really pay attention to the score as much so when I did, I was a little bit like, okay, okay, it's nice. But in comparison up with what it went up against in that year, which was Dunkirk, Phantom Thread, mm. uh, The Last mm. Jedi with John Williams. I'm not going to class that, to be honest. And then three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri with Carter Burrell. I was a little bit like, hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like Dunkirk obviously should have won. Mm. Like... I mean, neither of us are the world's biggest stands for Hans Zimmer, but the influence of that film... Yeah. And that soundtrack in particular was incredible. The fact that Inception and Dunkirk, probably the two most significant soundtracks in terms of signposting the last decade of film music were not winners, is is bizarre to me. Yeah. and yeah, I completely agree. This is this is a very cool score. I've voted for it a couple of times. I love it as a score. I love Desplat. I don't consider it even close to his best. As I said at the beginning, I think Girl with the Pearl Earring is by far his best. And that that is a film where everything about what Desplat does, it just it works beautifully in that film. It's just it's absolutely sublime. Yeah, I mean, um, even the ground um, Budapest Hotel was. Yeah. much more interesting I think that did that win an Oscar for it I think it might have yeah, yeah. that was his other Oscar yeah, yeah. so that I understand 
Yeah, agree. But this one... Because he's got a quirky. He's got a quirky touch, which yeah. I think is the other... Like You, you said that like you, you go European for romance or French for romance. French also gives you... A, it's a very particular like trope of the quirky girl, yeah. um, which she definitely falls into. Um, it's, like, it's like a more mature version of what the Americans would do as a quirky girl, which I think is kind of like a deliberate choice. And it works. It does work, and it's nice. Um... Uh, and Displar is good for it, but meh. yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, there's a hint of disappointment in us, isn't there? There really is. <laughs> uh, so, th- probably look. I think I suspect we are both going to wind up going for um, Pan's Labyrinth on this. Uh, the one thing I'll say though is that Joe Del Toro has kind of stopped working with Javier Navaretti in favor of working with Alexander Desplat. I know, I'm very surprised um, about, about that because this is the third collaboration. Mm. So, you know, he himself is voting um, with his choices. As much as I love Desplat, and I think it's pretty obvious how much I, I do love the sound that Desplat has, Desplat does have some weaknesses. Um, he does his scores very quickly. Mm. Like he did this one in six weeks and that's normal for him. He's a very fast turnaround yeah. composer. I read somewhere where he has like 10 films a year and I'm just like... Yeah. Mm, um, and he... Ten- yeah. It's, it's a, it's Go a, on. Sorry. It's, it's kind of like I think if you get kind of become get known for that, I think it can kind of go against you in some ways because you don't want to be seen as a, some, some sort of a factory. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I think you do know, you like some composers, like Jerry Goldsmith also wrote very quickly and James Horner also vote, wrote very quickly. Um, you, the problem is that they fall into their own tropes when they do it. So whilst in both of those cases, they were capable of doing real groundbreaking compositions, Jerry and James. Um, when they were doing them quickly, they both fell into a thing of the way they're just kind of like, drag out their old hits and just copy them yeah. and paste them it's into the new score. just recycling their old music, which is normally what yeah. any composer would do if they have a, a yeah. library of music that, you know, had not been used in other films because it's just, it's quicker. Yeah, and I think the problem with Desplat is that unlike those two, Desplat only has one sound. Mm. Desplat has this sound and it is beautiful and it is different and it is magical and I'm so glad it is here. But he only does this sound and he can do it very quickly because he can but it very much is that you you buy Desplat for this one thing and so for someone like Del Toro who has such a varied and interesting style I wouldn't want him to get uh, locked in on that because I think it's worse than the obvious comparison which is um, Tim Burton and Danny Elfman Yeah. where Danny Elfman I mean, you've got some misgivings about what's happened to Danny Hoffman over time, but he is a far more varied composer. He shakes things up a lot more than um, Displar does. It's really interesting how we're kind of saying that this collaboration could be a not very good one. It is. I assume you're voting for Pants Labyrinth? Yes. Me too. And that means, I mean, it didn't even matter where we voted there because you've been voting for Pants Labyrinth all the way through. Uh, it is a clear win for Javier Navaretti and the score for Pan's Labyrinth. Yay! I'm so sorry you didn't win an Oscar, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, you but know. at least you won our Oscar. Exactly, yeah. our Oscar. Yay! How much better do you think 
the Pan's Labyrinth score is than Shape of Water? Like, is it significantly better or is it close but just consistently? I feel I was taken on a more emotional journey with Pan's okay. Labyrinth and I felt it, there were a lot more triggers there. Yep. Um, Which I'm, I actually I completely agree with. I think that's exactly the difference, and that's why I did vote for Pan's Labyrinth more often. I think I love the Displaced sound. I think it is really, really well suited to some moments of this film. But overall, particularly any time the lullaby comes through in Pan's Labyrinth, it just has so much more emotional weight absolutely. than anything that is in The Shape of Water, and that just blows it out of the water. Huh? Yeah, yeah, good uh, one, yeah. <laughs> Shall we talk about what we will be doing next month? Yes. So one of the saddest things of the last month was the passing of one of the great, great composers of world cinema, the maestro himself, Ennio Morricone. God rest his uh, soul. So we, I know. It's, it's so, I mean, the man was very old, but it's also so sad. It's one of those people who, on one hand, you're like, you're surprised to find out he's still around, but also you kind of wish always would be there, always give you a small music. So, True, but he is eternal well, in it through his music, and what a collection as well. Oh my god, what like yes. So we are going to do what I think are his two most iconic, memorable scores. But bear in of mind, course, guys, this was really hard to pick as well because we we are aware yes. of, the, of his rich collection of yes. music that varies from like the is it from 50s over all over to like the 2010s 2018 2019 yeah. yeah like when he finally won his oscar for the hateful eight we are not doing that one no we are going to be doing from 1966 the good the bad and the ugly that seminal clint eastwood western which i believe you haven't seen ella I haven't seen, but I am aware of it. And again, I've seen Excellent. many, many scenes from it, but never watched it all the way from start to finish. Excellent. And another one from 1986. Now, this is a film which when I was first getting into soundtracks in like the mid 90s, back when like we didn't talk about soundtrack composers much, so it was almost like a, a controversial thing to like buy a John Williams album or something like that because like oh you, you bought the album of like the music weird anyway people everyone back then was obsessed with the soundtrack of one particular movie and I was given I think I was literally given this CD like three times by different people and it is the soundtrack to 1986 The Mission truly truly beautiful soundtrack so I mean any of my cronies winning either way because I mean of course, we. I, I didn't want to have the prospect of Ennio Morricone losing. So we, we're going to celebrate the career of Ennio Morricone with two spectacular scores from 20 years apart. I am really, really looking forward to that. Maybe people at home could write in with um, some of their other favourite scores. Maybe we could play one or two mm. other tracks at the end if people, if people suggest them. Because certainly a lot of great choices. The Untouchables particularly springs to mind. Or The Hateful Eight. Uh, the Thing as well is pretty good. Oh, yeah. yeah good good shout. Mm. So, yeah. Uh, look forward to that next month. It's going to be a very entertaining watch. Hope you enjoyed Pan's Labyrinth in the Shape of Water. If you disagree with um, Ella in particular. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> feel thanks, free to thanks let for her know. singling me out. 
I, I went I went both ways. I I respected the benefits of both. Mm. <laughs> but until then, goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.